Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts 21. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 930. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. So Acts 21, verses starting verse 1 and reading through verse 14. Uh, today's a kind of, kind of a special Sunday for me. Uh, five years ago, I officially started as the pastor here at Grace Baptist Church. And I'm so thankful for that. God has been very merciful in that time. I'm thankful for the way that God brought our family here uh, to you. And I pray that he will continue to expand and uh, expand that work in years to come. In fact, I'm confident that he will. Uh, I was thinking this past week leading up to this weekend about everything that went on in the move to come here. Uh, Titus was not quite a month old at the time. It felt a little crazy to move with a newborn, but it felt right. And Ellie and I were really excited to get here, even as we were sad to leave some dear friends. Um, We had arranged our plans so that we could have one last Sunday with our our old church before we said goodbye. And so uh, we packed the truck that Friday and Saturday. And as we did, we kept hearing people talk about the weather that was headed our way. It was already kind of cold, uh, but there were forecasts that were warning of a storm system that was sweeping across the Midwest to drop the temperatures even lower and to drop a lot of snow. So I was a little concerned, but I thought, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to be fine. We are going to press forward. We're going to do this. Um, Well, that Sunday evening before we left, we were sitting there in the prayer time, and I remember one of our members standing up and asking the church to pray for him and for his wife because they were supposed to travel through this storm up to Minnesota. He was supposed to speak in a conference. He wasn't sure if he was going to make it there because of the storm. And I wasn't concerned up until that point when he started asking the church to pray. And I thought to myself, we're, we're moving in this storm with a baby. Uh, up until then, I had been so consumed with just the details of getting everything together. It just hadn't been a concern to me. And I, I chose to purposely ignore it so I wouldn't think about it. So uh, things were already in motion. The truck was packed. Uh, the car was loaded. Our apartment was empty. My dad was going to be flying down. He was on his way to the airport to fly down so he could help us drive up. So the idea of delaying at that point just seemed unthinkable. So Monday morning, we packed up. We got. We left on schedule. And then we drove through some of the worst conditions that I have ever been, fighting the wind, squinting through the snow, passing. I lost track of how many cars we passed in ditches. And we made our way up north. And I, I still remember, I think the biggest, I remember driving with the wheel of the boxcar we had rented. And it was like at a 45 degree angle to counter the wind as it was whipping across Indiana. Every time we go under an overpass, I had to straighten up because the wind suddenly was blocked. So it was about eight hours of that. We, we, we got here, though. I, I, I I don't know if it was faith or stubbornness that made me want to push on with our plan. It probably wasn't wise to be on the road in those conditions, especially with the baby. But I remember being so convinced that this is where we were, we're supposed to be, and this is when we were supposed to get here. There was something that had me just utterly convinced that while the roads were dangerous, I was not uh, blind to that fact. We were going to make it just fine. And it's just kind of hard to explain. But I just remember having this deep-seated calm about all of it. I really believed that God had called us here. I believed this was the time for us to go. And I was convinced God was going to see us safely through. And he did. We had a couple close calls in Chicago, but we made it. Now, it is a great comfort to me to know that the Lord, our God, is not a God who risks. 
He knows the beginning and the end and the middle because he has ordained it all. He purposes and he works out, and they are, those things are never overthrown. God in his sovereignty rules and directs our world. He is sovereign over even the smallest details of our universe. He always accomplishes the purposes of what he means to do. The trouble is, as confident as I am and as much comfort as that brings me, the trouble is that I think, uh, and I think this is something every Christian has to work through and grapple, the trouble is that while we know that God is sovereign over all those things according to his will, although he has clearly defined his desire for us, what he calls us to do, and although he has, we know that we can trust his will of decree, God does not typically reveal the details of his will of direction for us. We are not born with a heads-up display telling us every place to go and every decision that we're meant to make. And that can be hard. It is good and right for us to want to follow God's will. It should be natural to us as, as followers of Christ. It is important that we seek God to direct our ways. But we can run into problems if we begin to treat the will of God and his plan for our life as something that we must know before we can make a decision. Or worse, we run into problems when we begin to think that God ought to conform his will for our life to our will and to what we desire. That is not God's design for his people. He has purposed a better way for us, and this morning, I want to look at that with you. I want to look at the will of the Lord for our lives in the example of the life of Paul. Now, as we look at this, this passage, Luke has recorded some of the details of Paul's journey from the churches in Macedonia, Asia, and Greece back to Jerusalem. As he traces Paul's trip, Luke reflects on the danger that lay before Paul. More than a, a mere travelogue, this passage really presents us with an opportunity to think about the will of God and how we ought to respond to it. There's a comfort and a confidence here for God's people to draw from Paul's example, who faced the certainty of trouble and danger in Jerusalem with determination and conviction, ultimately because he had entrusted himself to the will of the Lord. As we read this passage and as we unpack it together this morning, my prayer is that God will use it to equip you to consider how we ought to think about the will of the Lord and how we must respond to it by entrusting ourselves to it and those we love to his loving heart and his steadfast faithfulness. So to put it short, we're going to be looking at the will of God this morning, what it means to know the will of God and how we ought to respond to it. So let's begin by reading our passage, if you will, one more time. Please stand out of respect for God's word as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 21 and reading through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Luke writes, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea that presides over this passage is this statement that's recorded for us in verse 14. Let the will of the Lord be done. That is a powerful statement to read, considering everything that Luke tells us about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. We, we know what awaits Paul. We don't know the details of it, but we know that there will be trouble. We know that there will be imprisonment, and there will possibly be death. By the end of this passage, though, we see Paul and his companions and the church that loved him willing to submit themselves to whatever God had in store. And that is a powerful transformation that happens in this passage. That really is what I want to unpack with you this morning. This attitude, let the will of the Lord be done, is meant to be the attitude of every believer. And I think we all know that, but I also find that it is not actually easy for believers to put these sorts of actions into words, or these words into actions. It was not easy for the brothers and sisters who knew and loved Paul to see him go to a place where they knew he would suffer and likely be killed. Neither is it easy for us when God calls us to go through difficult paths. Risk for God takes faith in God. God has not told us every step of the path that he has called us to take. That is why stepping out in faith can feel risky to us. But God has called us to trust him and to entrust all that we are, all that we have, all that we hope to be, all that we hold dear to him as well. And because God is faithful, we come to find out that as we step out in faith, that risk that we may take for God is really not a risk at all. Really, it is the only secure way to live. I find Paul's example in this passage to be so helpful and instructive, a little, um, a little convicting, and very practical. Because I think Paul teaches us something of what it is to live in obedience to the will of God, how to entrust ourselves to it, and this passage teaches us how to entrust the ones we hold dear to him as well. 
So this passage, while it very much is the itinerary of Paul's travels from the west back to the east to Jerusalem, it really is so much more than that. It is really meant to equip God's people to follow after Christ in their own lives, to find true freedom as we submit ourselves to the will of our Heavenly Father, to help us put that into action, to help us come to a place where we can say in our own lives with Luke and these believers at Caesarea, let the will of the Lord be done. So what I want to do this morning is to unpack this text with you. And as we do, I want to seek to answer three questions from it, which are common and essential for us as we wrestle ourselves with being obedient to the will of God for our lives. So first we want to ask this question, what is God's will for me? How can I know what God's will is for me? Second, I'm going to ask, how do I embrace God's will for my own life? And third, we want to ask the, maybe the hardest question, how do I entrust the ones that I love to God and his will for them? So in answering these three questions, I think we're actually equipped to pursue God better, to find our security in him, and to live in obedience to the calling of Christ upon our lives. So let's begin with, I think, the most natural question that comes anytime we're talking about the will of God, which is, how do I know God's will? What is God's will for me? I think that many Christians ask and grapple with this question, maybe even on a daily basis. We want to please God, and to please God, we need to do what he directs us to do. The Bible clearly teaches us that God is working in his creation. It teaches us that he has a purpose and a plan for our lives. The trouble that we run into is where we expect that God is simply is going to tell us what that plan is before it happens. That simply is not the case. And God is kind not to reveal every detail of what he has appointed to take place in our lives. I think if he did, it would actually overwhelm us. Now, Kevin DeYoung has pointed out that while we feel like we can know and need to know what God wants out of every step of the way, that desire, as well-intentioned as it may be, is really more folly than freedom. Although God is intimately aware and at work in the smallest details of our lives, just as we read in Luke chapter 12, verse 7, his work in those details is not always visible to us. When Christians wrestle through the details of God's will, typically, I think it's over decisions relating to this. We wrestle over where God would have us to live, whether we should go here or there, what we should eat, what we should drink, whether we should take that job or this job, or what sort of degree we should pursue. We wrestle with whether we should have a job or stay at home. Now, these are real decisions with real consequences, and they are important. They can be life-altering. And so, They can consume our time and our focus. Sometimes I think it would be nice if life came with some sort of GPS to tell me what decisions I should do and shouldn't do. The truth is that there really is, though, a certain kind of beauty to the way that God God has actually designed our lives to be. It's deeper. It's more beautiful. God's will for our lives is not obscure, And he doesn't mean for us to get wrapped up in anxiety, afraid that if we make the wrong decision, we're going to mess up the purpose that he has for our lives. God has revealed his will for us. He has spoken to us in his word about what he wants us to pursue and how he he calls us to function. We actually, we... Brad read that for us in Romans 12. As we begin there in verse 1, we find Paul calling Christians 
to know the will of the Lord. And then he begins to lay out instruction after instruction for us about how Christians are called to live. God is sovereign over his world, and he has not created us to be robots. He has created us instead to be reflections of the glory of his Son. He has designed us to seek him, to know him, and to live in pursuit of greater things than the temporary things that we tend to spend most of our time worrying about. He has also equipped us to put this faith into action and his word into action by giving us his spirit and calling us to walk by faith in him. As we look at Paul's journey back to Jerusalem, there's a lot for us to learn about what it means to to live by faith in the will of God for our lives. Uh, and there's a number of things I want you to notice here. First off, I want you to notice that there's a certain, there is certainty in Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. Back in Acts 20, verse 22, Paul had told the Ephesian elders that he was bound or constrained by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. He doesn't go into the details of how he knows this, but clearly Paul understood it was God's will for him to travel back to deliver this tribute he had collected from the churches in the West to bring relief to, to the believers in Jerusalem. There is not a doubt in Paul's mind God is leading him to go with here, even though he is equally certain that when he gets there, he will face imprisonment and he will face afflictions. But in addition to seeing the certainty Paul has, I also want you to notice that even while he has this clear understanding about where God is leading him to go, There are also many things that Paul doesn't know. In directing Paul to return, God had not told him every step he was to take. Again, he told those Ephesian elders that though he was constrained by the Spirit to return, though God had revealed something to him about the certainty that he would indeed suffer for the gospel when he got there, Paul says he doesn't know what's going to ultimately happen to him there. In verse 22, again, of of chapter 20, He says, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that sufferings await. Now, while we understand implicitly from the scriptures that God was directing Paul's steps towards Jerusalem, providing for him on the road, we don't get the impression that God was giving him a step-by-step instruction like about which ship he should take or what road he should travel on. The reason I think it's important for us to see this this blend of certainty and uncertainty in what Paul knew about God's will for him is that I I think it helps us avoid becoming paralyzed in our own decision-making. God's will for our lives is not a maze that we're meant to meander through and try to figure out through trial and error what he wants us to do. His sovereignty over our lives is not something that human decision can overthrow. Our decisions are real, But in the mystery of God's power, they also fall under the reign of his rule. Just as the book of Proverbs tells us that the decision of a die when it's cast into the lap is from the Lord and that the heart of kings is directed by God like water in his hand, so we can trust that his will is at work in our own lives to direct them in exactly the way that he has chosen. God has equipped us with reasonable minds. He has given us a greater purpose. And he has equipped his people with his own Holy Spirit to direct us in the way he means us to go. And he means for us to live by faith as we pursue this purpose which he has set before us. I want to submit to you that as Paul went to Jerusalem, as he did, bound by the Spirit and trusting the Lord to work, although he did not know some things, 
that he did this all and, and knew that God was leading him there uh, and was willing to do this because first, he was seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now this, as we know from the Gospel of Matthew, is how Jesus means for his disciples to live. He says to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, these things that we tend to worry about, which our Father knows we know, that we need, will be added to you. When our minds and our hearts are set on this, on knowing God and on delighting ourselves in him and being obedient to him, then the things of this world lose their ability to control us. Now, I'm not saying that food and drink and your daily needs are not important. They are. I'm saying that Jesus calls his people to seek him and to seek his holiness as a matter of first importance. And he says that our Heavenly Father will provide for all the things that we need. The more we know of Christ and of his goodness and of his faithfulness, the more we find that we are able to trust him with, with our good times and with our bad times, to be full in lean times, full of joy in lean times, and also to be protected in full times when we are tempted to wander from God. The second reason I think that Paul went to Jerusalem as he did was that he had entrusted himself to Christ, his Lord, so that he was willing to go wherever his king called him to be. For Paul to live was Christ and to die was gain. His greatest desire was to know Christ and to make him known. Paul did not count it shame or as loss to go to Jerusalem to suffer and potentially even die. Just as Jesus had set his own face as flint and gone to the cross in Jerusalem, so Paul is traveling there now, not knowing what he will face, but knowing that this will be the greatest challenge he has faced yet. Third, I want to submit to you that Paul went back to Jerusalem the way that he did because he was able to discern what the Lord had appointed for him because he had committed himself to knowing Christ in the Scriptures. Paul had put into practice what he wrote to the Romans when he said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's word, wielded by God's Holy Spirit, is what gives God's people a clear view to his will for their lives. It's in the word of God that we see the deeds that God has appointed for us to do, namely to believe in his Son, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to flee from and to resist evil, and to seek the priorities of the kingdom of Christ in every decision that we make. God has given us, equipped us, with tools to know his will. And as we as we commend ourselves to the scriptures, as we soak ourselves in them, as we prayerfully seek God to make his will known to us, as we go out through the details of our day, we will see and recognize what his commands for us are to do. While it might be nice to have God's directions for us in every single decision written out, I think that God has actually given us something far more beautiful. He has given us his word and he has given us his spirit. He has set his kingdom before us, and he has told us to go and make that our priority. He has called us and assured us that he is at work in every moment, every day, to bring about his very good purposes for the glory of Christ. 
God's will is for us to walk by faith, submitting ourselves to him, doing everything by the power of the Spirit, which he has poured out richly on us through his Son, trusting that his will will most certainly be done. Friends, I I hope, I don't know if you're the kind of person that wrestles with anxiety over each and every decision you make. Some of you might be a little bit more laid back and you just kind of go with the flow. Uh, Some people, I think, are very more high-strung and concerned that we get every single decision right. And I think that depends on what situation we're in and how much we see matters about whatever we're doing. But I hope that seeing how God has revealed his will to us in his word and how he has given us his spirit to help us interpret that and understand that and apply that, and that everything, that he works all things together for his purposes, and there's not one decision that can go outside of what he has appointed, I hope that that comes as a relief to you, as I know it does to me. I hope that knowing these things will give you a confidence to act, to live out the heart of God that he has revealed to us through his Son so that you live dangerously in obedience to him, recognizing that when you are obeying Christ and seeking faithfulness to God, you're not in any danger. I hope this will enable you to seek him first and to trust him with every decision you make. God has made his will for us clear. He has called us to live by faith in his Son, to put into action all the gifts and the means of grace that he's provided for us. He has called us to trust that his word is true that his purposes are sure. And that leads us to consider our second question. If we we have seen how the will, how God makes his will known to us in his word and works in us through his spirit, then how do we actually go about the work of embracing God's will for our lives? It's one thing to know God's will. It's another thing to embrace that will. It's one thing to hear Jesus tell you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness It is another thing to actually seek it. And to do that takes faith. It takes believing in God's promises that they are true. And it takes stepping out on those promises and trusting ourselves to him. So how do we do that? How do we embrace God's will for us? Well, I think we can see an an answer to that question very clearly in the way that Paul actually heads to Jerusalem. First, we see that we are meant to embrace God's priorities for our lives as our own. God's priorities must become our own. We must believe that whatever God has in store for our lives is right and that it is better than what we would otherwise choose for ourselves. When God called Paul to himself, Paul was a rising religious star uh, in his day. He was among the elite. He was known in Jerusalem by his zeal. He was respected on his way to personal greatness. But he willingly gave all that up when Christ changed his heart. All those things that he formerly prized were now nothing to him compared to the surpassing greatness of the glory of Christ. Now, as Paul is on the road, we see he is headed to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to suffer under the very hand of that same council that he used to serve. And the closer he gets, the more sure he can be of what awaits him. Uh, From these brothers and sisters in Tyre to Agabus, the prophet who came down from Jerusalem, uh, God is clearly telling Paul and his friends what is going to happen as he goes. But Paul remains resolute. He's determined to go. Why? 
He's determined to go because he loved Christ above his own life. Several times in this passage, Luke tells us that there were believers begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, telling him, even through the Spirit, what was going to happen. Paul was moved by their tears, but he was not dissuaded. Why? Because he was willing not only to be in prison for the gospel, but to give his own life in the name of Christ. Now, we should not think that Paul had some sort of death wish. Not at all. No, it is clear to me that he had a love for Christ that made him willing to accept whatever God had appointed for him to do. And spoiler alert, Paul's not going to die in Jerusalem. But even as he goes, we can see that he was more concerned about being a faithful steward with his life, of being faithful to the ministry he had received. And he was more concerned about that than he was concerned about what that would mean for him in the short term. His eyes were set on the glory of Christ and the joy of the gospel. So whatever role God had, had for him to do in spreading the good news and exalting Christ, whether that was by life or by death, Paul was content. He was content because he valued nothing more than that. And so he was willing to cast himself on the will of God, trusting that whatever was in store for him, it was better than whatever he could have tried to gain for himself by trying to save himself. This this is a mark of true discipleship, friends. Jesus says that whoever would keep his life for himself would lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And Jesus did not come to make your life dreary and boring. He came to give you a life that is abundant He came to give you life that is eternal. He came to give you a life that is truly satisfying, that has meaning and significance and purpose. He has redeemed you for his own name's sake. And what he has appointed for your life, as mundane as that might seem to you, or as difficult as that might seem to you, has a great heavenly purpose. Because your life is in Christ. Your life is a display of the work of Christ on the cross, through you, that displays his glory in a unique way. And so in order to entrust ourselves to the will of God, we must accept that work that he is doing for ourselves. Paul was convinced that the Lord was calling him to Jerusalem despite the trouble that awaited him. He was determined to go because he knew Christ and his love for him. And that leads us to the second way that we are able to embrace God's will for our lives, which is that we embrace God's will for our lives by delighting ourselves in Jesus. Paul understood that while the Lord had called him to danger, he would never call him into actual ultimate harm. It might sound a little crazy, but understand what I mean. Paul suffered for the gospel. He was imprisoned, shipwrecked, run out of town, beaten, stoned, threatened. And he did ultimately lose his life. But what did he lose? He lost nothing. Because in Christ, he had found everything. Jesus is not a means for us to have earthly treasure or cushy lives. He is the source of every blessing. But he has called his people to a greater glory. He has given us eternal life and a promise that even if we lose everything, if we lose everything that we would call our own because of our allegiance to him, we will gain everything in the heavenly treasure that we have with him and in him. Paul understood that. 
And that's why he could say, I don't count this life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course. It gave him joy to say that. To entrust ourselves to the will of God, we must come to the realization that wherever King Jesus calls us to go, it is for our greatest happiness. All too often, I think the reason we shrink from obedience is because we value these temporary treasures over the eternal reward that we have in Christ. So if we are to embrace the will of God for our lives, we must begin by setting our eyes heavenward. We must learn to set our happiness in our Redeemer. We must trust that the faithfulness of our God is sure and that the love and the goodness of our God never fails. And that becomes all the harder, all the more hard, more difficult when we talk about entrusting not just ourselves, but the ones we love to our Lord. And that's our third question we want to answer from this. How do I entrust the ones that I love to God and to his will? I've said a lot about Paul so far this morning. What about his friends? This scene at Philip's house in Caesarea is really hard, and it should feel difficult. Lou tells us that while they were staying there, they stayed there for many days with Philip and his family, and while they were there, a man named Agabus, a prophet from Judea, came down to visit them. And while he was there, we're told that he took Paul's belt and bound his feet in his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. I just want to ask you, what would you do if you were sitting in your house and someone came from a, let's say someone came up from Milwaukee, and they came to your house, and then all of a sudden they started saying something like this about one of your loved ones in your house? How would you react to that? I suppose it would look something like this. Luke tells us that upon hearing this prophecy, all the people in the house started to urge Paul, don't go. Even Luke himself is begging Paul, Paul, we need you. Don't don't go down there. Hasn't God made it clear what's going to happen if you go? You're going to suffer. Let somebody else take this tribute for the sake of the church and for us. Don't go. This was hard for Paul. His friends are begging him not to go. His heart, he says, was broken. And I don't think it's because he's upset about the care that his friends are showing him. He loved these brothers and sisters, and they clearly loved him. But his path was laid, and his heart was resolute. God was leading him to Jerusalem, and he would not turn away. I think it is so much easier to risk yourself than the ones that you love. So we should not think too harshly about Philip and Luke and the brothers and sisters who saw Agabus tied up on the floor with Paul's belt, warning Paul about what was going to happen. Who among us would not have tried to talk Paul out of this? Let me go, Paul. I'll, I'll go, not you. You need to write some more letters. I need you to explain more about these doctrines. But that was not their choice. It was God's choice. And instead, they had to respond in this by trusting the Lord with their friend. How do you do that? How do you come to a place where you can say about your dearest friends, about your son or your daughter, your parents, 
your husband, your wife. Let the will of the Lord be done. Well, first, we must see the Lord as our greatest treasure. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is a hard saying. That's a hard saying. It's hard because it requires you to put love for Jesus above every other love in your life. If we would embrace God's will for us, then we need to start here by being willing to search our souls to determine what the true priority of our heart is. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! That includes your love. That order must be reflected in our love and our priorities, friends, because until it is, until Christ reigns supreme in our affections, we will never love as we were meant to do. Christ is the fountain from which true love flows. If you would love your husband, if you would love your wife, if you would love your children, your parents, your neighbor, your friends, even your enemies, then you must begin here by loving and treasuring Christ above all. It is because of the love of God shown to us in Christ that we know love. So it must begin here. The second key aspect of entrusting our loved ones to God and his will is to recognize that the ones we love belong ultimately to him. Your life belongs to God. And so does the life of everyone you love. He loves them more than you are capable of. He made them with it in his own image. He has given them purpose. He is the one who breathed life into them, who fashioned and, and made them in their mother's womb and gave them a soul and called them out. God has blessed your life through them. They are a gift, and he is not robbing you when he calls them here or there. We all have this fleshly desire to want to control things. I have never felt that so much as being a dad. This is where anxiety gets us. We think we're in control, and so we fret over what might happen. We don't like the sensation of feeling helpless. I have never felt so helpless as being a dad. So this is where trusting your loved ones to the Lord brings peace. Because while control is an illusion for us, it is not an illusion for God. God is sovereign over all your days. And he is over the days of those who you love as well. He is the author of love. We know love because of how he has loved us. So let go of that desire to control your life and to control the life of someone you love. Give it to God. Let the will of the Lord be done. And as you do, you will find great peace and joy And knowing thirdly 
that what God has in store for those we love is the greatest good. It is the greatest good. To trust God, I think we have to be convinced of two things. We have to trust God's power, and we have to trust his motives. We have to trust that God is able and that he is good in that ability. As a son of a pastor, I have lived many different places. I always struggle to tell people where I'm from because I have lived all over the place. Most of my time growing up was spent living away from my extended family. So it's kind of an expectation I have grown up with that a sacrifice is made when God calls you to be a pastor because you never know where you're going to be. When I graduated from seminary, Ellie and I didn't know where we would end up. I was sending resumes to Australia, Idaho, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, all over the place. And I remember when I graduated, my, my, grand, my late grandmother and my mom came up and started telling me, now look, Philip, you guys don't go moving far away. And I knew why they were saying it, because they've lived it. But to my surprise, very suddenly, I remember Don, my mother-in-law, speaking up and saying, now ladies, that is not for you to decide, and don't you go burdening with them with that. They have to go where God calls them. Now, there have been many moments in my life since knowing Dawn where she has just spilled out biblical wisdom and insight. But this is, and this is one that really stands out in my memory and in Ellie's too because I was floored to hear her say that. I was so impressed because I knew that was hard for her to say. Now, she didn't want us to move very far away either. In fact, she had always joked that we needed to go somewhere warm. There was a rule it had to be Kentucky or lower. So for her to say, go wherever the Lord leads you, has never been lost on me for her to say that, because I know it was hard. That is hard to say to someone you love, because it might mean that God is going to take them elsewhere. It might mean that they're going to face challenges and difficulties that we don't want for them. But friends, Jesus tells us that his heart, the very heart of God, is gentle and lowly. He knows what it is like to give what is dearest to you. After all, God gave us his son. He sent Christ into a dark, dangerous world to be the light of the world. He sent Jesus into a world of death so that through his own death, he would bring his people life. Jesus embraced a life of service so that we could be restored to God to be his children. He did this because he did not hold back. Christ has been exalted as Lord and Savior, and so all who are joined to him by faith get to share in that glory as well. The glory of the cross is in that Christ went, that he gave, and that he overcame. That is how God would have us to live. He would have us to embrace his own heart, He would have us to trust that whatever dangers or troubles he calls his people into, they are never ultimately in risk of being harmed because he loves them and he cares for them and has a greater purpose for their joy and for his glory than we are ever able truly to understand in this life. The glory of heaven is is made known to us in the sacrifice of Jesus. So if we are to submit to the will of God, not just for our own lives, but for all the lives of those whom we hold dear, we must see that God loves them more deeply than we can. And we must see 
that God means to bless them in his goodness for his glory. And when we can see that, then we are finally able to entrust them to him with joy to say, let the will of the Lord be done. Trusting God is not merely resigning ourselves to him. It is living courageously, seeking him and his kingdom first. It is living by his grace and for his glory. It is embracing his great and good purposes. It is living in the freedom of his love, his goodness, his perfect wisdom, and his sovereignty. So wherever God takes you, may he give us all a heart to say, let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to read a passage like this and not think about all the people that we have said goodbye to, all the ways that you have called us, all the sacrifices and challenges we have faced. And Lord, sometimes from our very limited perspective, we look at what you have, at what you're doing in the world and we go, Lord, why? Why would you do that? How is that the right choice? Lord, this is a call for humility from us because we see the world through a straw and you see the whole picture. So Father, give us hearts to see your glory. Give us hearts to trust your will. Give us hearts to know your goodness, to look to Christ and to understand that what you have begun in us, you will see through. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are fixed on heaven. And I pray that we would submit ourselves to your will, that we would seek it in your word, that we would know it by your spirit, and that we would desire it according to your way. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our song